This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Fleeing from Bombay, deserting the city to escape the bubonic plague. More than half the population has run away and business is paralyzed. Cemeteries filled with the dead. Unquote. That was the headline of a report in the New York Times on January 15, 1897. The cotton textile mill owners had fled with the rest of the city. So the petty credit had virtually ceased. As a result, textile workers demanded not just higher pay, but also daily rather than monthly wages. The government officials were worried that the plague would disrupt the commercial prospects of the city. But the mill owners were worried for another reason. They were worried that laborers would now demand more wages. While the city's commercial elite looked at overcrowding at the root of the plague and the principal threat to the city, Bombay's mill owners viewed solving the housing problem for industrial workers as a way to manage and control their workers. Now, the views of uh, the government, the authorities and the mill owners, of course, were not unified on especially the question of how to house the Bombay's mill workers. Take, for instance, the testimony of Manmohandas Ramji. He testified before the Indian Industrial Commission of 1916 to 1918. And he said that he supported legislation which forced large employers to house 50% of their workers. That was one side of the story. So, on the one hand was Manmohandas Ramji who testified before the Indian Industrial Commission of 1916 to 18 that he supported laws which compelled large employers to house 50% of their workers. On the other side was our friend Dinshaw Wacha, who was a mill owner, and also the president of Mumbai Corporation, Mumbai Municipal Corporation for 30 years and also one of the founders of Indian National Congress and 20-year member of the Improvement Trust. So, Wacha was adamant that housing was the responsibility not of the employer, but of the state. So, caught up in this tug of war, the work of uh, Bombay Improvement Trust, which was set up in 1898, uh, was hampered. By 1904, the trust had constructed four of the six chawls at Agripara. It had planned to make six originally and it postponed the construction of the other two. Um, the trust hoped that private enterprises would now build additional quarters. After 1905, semi-permanent huts became an increasingly common solution for accelerating the trust's housing demolition. 
The trust had introduced such accommodations, as in um, semi-permanent huts, at the Kennedy Sea Face, and added other huts at Charney and Paulton Roads in 1908 and 1909. These temporary buildings originated in part uh, due to delays in clearing areas. So the annual reports of the trust, Bombay Improvement Trust in 1910 and 11, noted that no new schemes were possible for budgetary reasons. Dinshaw Watcher, who was a major critique of the trust, charged, and I quote, that the trust has failed in its fundamental duty of improving sanitation within the city, unquote. And so, some of the Bombay's mill owners were forced to provide accommodations for a portion of their labor force. Mills chose to provide worker housing for, for several reasons, really. In some cases, uh, for instance, Swadeshi mills on the outskirts of the city provided housing uh, due to the relative absence of housing in its vicinity. On the other hand, in some cases, they just refused. Take, for instance, the case of Morarji Gokuldas and David Mills. Other mills were skeptical for um, the housing provision at all. They said that workers refused to live in meal chawls because when they absented themselves from work, the jobber or the contractor who hired workers knew exactly where to find them. But more importantly, there was a more basic reason for the reluctance of the mill owners. Cotton prices in the market fluctuated so much that mills had to often change their production patterns and styles and strategies. In fact, they'd sometimes even shut down for, for some time and reopen once again. So permanent housing for laborers risked reducing their competitiveness. As a result, both the Improvement Trust and Bombay's meal owners eventually built housing for the city's textile workers in the decades after the plague especially. But it did not resolve the severe overcrowding problem that the city had been facing. Nor did they work together. In fact, they specialized in passing responsibility for mill housing onto the other party. Out of this sprawl, this controversy and uncertainty actually emerged the unique Mumbai or Bombay institution called the Chawl. And through the Chawl, the laboring poor would eventually take charge of the city. Bombay Bon has been exploring the watershed era in Bombay's evolution as a modern metropolis. The cotton textile industry stood at the heart of this transformation. It, and I quote, was the foundation of the city's prosperity and growth and the basis of its claim to be a major industrial metropolis, unquote. I was quoting historian Raj Narayan Chandavarkar. The Indian entrepreneurs in Bombay were relatively better equipped to take on British competition. By the early 1850s, 
Some of them were already involved in modern banks and shipping along the West Coast. It did not really take them long to foresee the great commercial potential of local factory production of cotton yarns and clothes. But the real great expansion of the industry began in the 1870s. Between 1872 and 78, there were as many as 32 new textile mills. Twelve of them opened in a single year, 1874-75. By 1914, that is the First World War, there were as many as 85 such mills. The cotton textile industry was financed and administered very largely by Indians. So, um, of the 95 mills started before the First World War, only 15 were promoted and controlled by, by Europeans. So, how exactly did the cotton mills change Bombay? Since the late 19th century, Bombay had been attracting people from distant places like Madras, the United Provinces, the Punjab, Northwest Frontier Province, or Balochistan. In fact, commerce and business have drawn to the city people from China, Japan, Indonesia, Italy, and France. Perhaps every nationality in Asia and Europe were present in Bombay. The massive inflow of workers drove the prospects of the city, as well as of uh, the mill owners. In 1892, mill workers made up more than 7% of the city's population, and it soon rose to 10%. But the mass migration to the city also brought forth fresh problems. Housing and sanitation for the vast incoming population schools for their children and medical help called for urgent solutions. Communal riots were also reported in the city. So apart from religious differences, excessive proximity in the overcrowded city in this case had caused conflict. Until the last decade of the 19th century, the rulers, the British authorities in Bombay, were largely indifferent to the social and political consequences of urban industrialization. Finally, however, the City Improvement Trust was set up as a response to the plague epidemic in the late 1890s. The trust was charged with making new streets, essentially with decongesting the city. It was trusted with um, making new streets, opening out overcrowded localities, and generally carrying out land reclamations to provide room for the expansion of the city. The activity of the Improvement Trust during the initial phase may be divided into six types. The first was slum clearance and quote-unquote improvement of areas that the municipal commissioner decided as unsanitary. Now, these included areas like Nagapara, Mandavi Koliwala, Nauraji Hill, Bhatwari, and East Agripala. A second category was to build new east-west roads, which connected congested inner cities with the seaboard. 
By the early 20th century, however, the trust focused much more on building roads for better communication between the Indian town and the expanding northern suburbs, as for instance the Parel Road Scheme. The third type of activity was to expand residential space by uh, providing more building sites, such as in Dadar, in Matunga, Kolaba, and Sion. Then there was the provision of sanitary housing for poorer sections, particularly at sites where slums were demolished. The fifth category of activities involved developing vacant lands handed over to it by the municipal corporation and the provincial government. And finally, the trust went about providing new housing for the city's police force. Let me give an example of, of the housing schemes which came up. Shivaji Park, for instance, is a byproduct of the infamous 1896 plague epidemic in Bombay. The authorities believed that unsanitary living conditions primarily caused the epidemic. So, a new vision was developed for the stretch of land which was to become the Shivaji Park neighborhoods in the 1930s. The thick vegetation was now seen to prevent the sea breeze from reaching into the city. Arrangements were duly made to trim the vegetation, and the place was converted into a large park, and about 200 residential plots were built around it. Bombay Municipal Corporation later took over the development and sale of the park along with the residential plots. And by 1940, all the plots around Shivaji Park had been sold out. However, the slum clearance scheme caused more problems than solutions. In a bid to make a profit, the Improvement Trust abandoned its early plan to build safe housing for the poor once the plague panic subsided to some extent. So, even though it was supposed to spend about 75 lakhs rupees towards uh, building sanitary hutments for the poor, not more than 15 lakhs were actually spent. However, the trust, along with the mill owners, though um, both neither really anticipated it, did come up with a less-than-ideal solution to tackle the housing and sanitation crisis. And thus came up the Chawl, one of the most definitive institutions that shaped the character of Bombay as a city. Florian Arban refers to Chandanwari Chawl, built by the Improvement Trust in 1904, as a classic example. Now, Chawls were small are small, one or two room tenements with a connecting passage, built over several floors with wood and iron. A typical room in a chawl is roughly spread over 100 to 200 square feet. They have a common set of toilets for the residents of each floor. The housing was low cost and uh, could host large groups of the workforce, who actually shared it on a timeshare basis. People came in, slept, went away again to work, when another group of people came in and uh, used that space for sleeping. 
Since most of uh, these meals were located in South and Central Bombay, naturally a majority of chawls were built around that area. As early as 1908, there were chawls in Kolaba, Fort, Esplanade, Mandavi, Chakla, Umarkhadi, Dongri, Vuleshwar, Girgaon, Walkeshwar, Mahalakshmi, Mazagaon, Baikala, Kamathipura, Nagapada, and in the suburbs such as Parel, Swiss, Sion, Mahim, and Worli. According to the 1911 census, nearly 70% of the city's population, Bombay's population, lived in Chawls. Architect Neera Adarkar, who wrote um, an interesting collection of, who edited really an interesting collection of essays on the Chawls of Bombay, writes that the Chawls have been, and let me quote uh, Adarkar, the Chawls have been agents of and have acted as protagonists in the city's social reform and national movements, class struggles, and social networks and institutions over the years. Unquote. The proximity to the workspace facilitated the involvement of the workers and the community at large in trade union activities and also in larger political movements like the independence struggle. I'll talk about the independence struggle and political movements in the next episode at greater detail. So, independence movement, labor activities, and later, Samyukta Maharashtra movement, uh, where these people participated with great enthusiasm. Now, these, um, of course, now dilapidated icons of Mumbai's vibrant urbanism once nurtured class mobility and drove the aspirations of millions of workers and lower middle classes to move on up. The upwardly mobile from the mid-20th century chawls provided the social networks and capital, which actually continue to drive Mumbai's suburbanization. Let me conclude now. I said Bombay was transformed from a prosperous port city to a major industrial metropolis, largely through the rapid expansion of the cotton textile industry. The growing mill industry called for labor. The massive inflow of workers drove the prospects of the city. But the mass migration to the city also brought forth fresh challenges. Housing and sanitation for the vast population of the laborers, schools for their children and medical help called for urgent solutions. The Bombay Improvement Trust was set up and along came the Chawl, one of the most distinctive institutions of Bombay-turned-Mumbai, which has since defined the energies of the city in the political, economic, social and cultural domains in more ways than can be listed here. The question of Bombay's industrial housing may seem far removed from the politics of the 21st century. But historians, journalists, and Bombay's meal workers themselves have told the story of Bombay's development as a narrative of the city's textile industry, of the rise and fall of the textile industry. Today, high-rise residential buildings, clubs, and malls have replaced the city's old mills in some cases. Once again, 
the city of Bombay is confronting the question of what space to accord to its mill workers and their descendants. As the sale of the city's old mills displaced 6,000 families that still lived in the mill chawls, Bombay's residents continue to negotiate access to the city, partly in terms of the rising costs of the real estate. In the post-independence period, urban elites and the city's middle classes have often used strikingly similar arguments about their outsider status, about the absence of sanitation. In the housing settlements populated by the city's newest arrivals. And many of these new arrivals are driven into slums by the high cost of living. While Bombay's elite, like the mill owners of the 19th century, have expressed concerns about what this means for the city's future, as a center of international finance, such concerns have done little to provoke any actual solution to Bombay's housing questions. In the next episode, I'll look into one of these ways um, with regard to the ways in which organized politics shaped the emerging city of the late 19th and early 20th century.